Hi, I'm Barry Alton. I'm the president of the New York uh, Cornet New York City chapter. I'd like to welcome you all and thank you for coming for, to tonight's program. Uh, the Cornet New York City chapter volunteers are organized into about 10 committees, several of which bring their own unique events to the chapter throughout the year. Uh, our chapter, in particular, the program committee led by Jody Brown, welcomes you to tonight's program featuring Danny Meyer. I'd also like to take this opportunity to give you a brief reminder of some of the chapter's upcoming events, uh, including the LaGuardia Airport Redevelopment Tour on Tuesday, October 3rd, Strategy and Portfolio Planning Community Event on Thursday, October 5th, Global Workplace Webinar on Tuesday, October 10th, Women's Committee Fall Speaker Event on Tuesday, October 24th, and there are many more. So please visit the Cornet New York City website and uh, you'll get more information and find out how to register. Now it's my pleasure to introduce Jody Brown, Director of Real Estate in Silicon Valley Bank and Chair of the New York City Programs Committee, to introduce tonight's distinguished speaker. Hi, so welcome everyone, and thank you for your patience as we make room for our standing only event for Danny. We're thrilled to have him. So Danny Myers, the founder and CEO of Union Square Hospitality Group, which comprises some of New York City's most beloved restaurants, as Union Square Cafe, Gramercy Tavern, and The Modern, certainly some of my most favorite restaurants. In 2004, Danny founded Shake Shack, which became a public company in 2015, and now has over 130 locations nationwide. Thank God in Arizona, where I now live. Thank you, Danny. Danny and USHD have earned 28 James Beard Awards. Danny was named to the Time 100 Most Influential People of 2015. And in 2017, Danny received the Julia Child Award. This was presented to an individual who has made profound difference in the way America cooks, eats, and drinks. My most favorite things. Danny's best-selling business book, Setting the Table, shares his philosophy of enlightened hospitality and discusses its applications to any industry. You can get this book um, after this event. Um, Danny's happy to sign it. It has a brand new cover, and I can just tell you from working with Danny doing this event, he exemplifies hospitality in every essence of the word. It's been a pleasure doing this with him. I just want to thank um, also the uh, Berman Group and the Programs Committee and Cornet for putting this together. Help me give a very hospitable welcome to Danny Meyer. Thank you, Jody. And how about a round of applause for Jody? Amazing. Thank you. Thank you all so much for being here. Um, this is. This is a kind of an amazing room. I don't think I've ever been in the Grand Hyatt giving a talk in front of so many amazing people. It, it almost feels like morning in here if you're standing up here. And I, I don't think it's morning. So that's a neat trick, whoever designed this room. I'm gonna spend my time today um, telling you a few stories, hopefully provoking um, some reaction from you because what I'm much more excited about than hearing my talk is hearing your questions. I think your questions are gonna teach me a lot about what's on your mind. I'm acutely aware that we, many of us know each other in this room, many of us have done business together in this room, 
we need each other. Um, you don't need us all the time, but we need you every time we do anything. And a lot of what I think about in my business is how bizarre it feels that there can actually be an adversarial relationship between people who are coming out to be delighted at a restaurant and those of us who are serving the food in the restaurant. We want nothing more when you dine in one of our restaurants, whether it's a fine casual place like Shake Shack or a casual place like Blue Smoke or a less casual but still not fancy place like Mialino or Union Square Cafe um, or North End Grill or Untitled or maybe even a more fancy place like the Modern or Gramercy Tavern. We have the same goal every single time which is that whoever made the choice to come there we have to give them a good reason to feel like they made a good choice and we have to make sure that when they leave two hours later, two and a half hours later even if they just came in for a glass of wine so a half an hour later we have to make sure that when they leave they say I actually feel a little bit better for some reason than when I came in and it's that magic dust that we put on people during that period of time that is really what we try to focus on the most and I want to share some stories about how we make that happen but before I do that remember what I said at the outset whether it's guests making a reservation or feeling like they have to wait too long to get their table or waiting forever to get their coat or waiting forever to get their bill feeling like they ha are required to leave a big tip even though they're not necessarily happy with the service or hospitality that they got our industry I would argue on many occasions has fueled an unfortunate and unnecessary adversarial relationship between the very people we're trying to delight and the actual goal that we have and I'm telling you that because I think the same thing has happened between our industries together where it can become highly transactional and not necessarily a hospitality experience and it's not we know that the minute we sit down and dream a dream whether it's with an architect or a real estate broker or a graphic designer or someone who's going to be providing the the fit out for our restaurant, the furnishings. Um, when you're first dreaming a dream of a restaurant, it is so exciting and everybody's, everybody's trying really hard. It's like the beginning of a relationship and it's highly emotional. It always costs more money than you wanted that dream and it always takes more time than you wanted that dream. Um, and that adversarial relationship can happen between our industries as well. I've seen it, I've experienced it. I want to talk about some of the things we've tried to do in our business to break down those walls. We have adversarial relationships just like many other companies do between the manufacturing team and the sales team, also known as the cooks and the waiters and bartenders. We try to break those walls down as well because at the end of the day, why are we all doing this? We're all in business to make people's lives better through the various specialties that we have. I'll start with a story about my dad um, who was in the travel business. He lived long enough to see Union Square Cafe, which was my first restaurant, 1985. Um, I didn't open Gramercy Tavern until 10 years later. Can you believe that? In 31 years, we've opened a lot of restaurants, but we only had one restaurant for the first 10 years. And my dad gave me a lot of advice 
the biggest piece of advice he gave me at the beginning was you can change everything about your restaurant, everything except the lease. If you make a mistake, it's true. He said, if you make a mistake on the menu, the format, the chef, the staff uniforms, your pricing construct, the art on the walls, the silverware, the plates, the, the chairs, you can change all of that stuff. But the one thing you can't change, the one thing that's immutable is your lease. And you better realize from the get-go, you are as much making a real estate bet as you are making a restaurant bet. And he gave me another really good piece of advice, which was always make sure that you have the right to assign your lease. Because the minute you open your doors, it's kind of like the minute you drive your brand new car off the lot, guess what happens to the value of every single thing that you bought, except maybe the art, if you did a good job picking the art. And maybe some of the bottles of wine, don't do that also. But he said, make sure that if, if this crazy, stupid career choice you've made. Remember, I was supposed to be a lawyer. That's, they didn't send me to school, good schools, to become a restaurant guy. Today, restaurant profession is a valid career choice, and I'm really proud of that, but it wasn't back then. And he was really girding and helping me to gird myself for failure. And it was all about real estate. And he was right. Now, the fact is that that restaurant, Union Square Cafe, is what Joe Baum, the former classic restaurateur, would have called a classic restaurant. And he would say a classic restaurant is one that actually endures beyond its first lease. So we signed that lease in 1985. I signed it. It wasn't a we back then. And I got the last 14 years assigned to me of a 20-year lease from the oldest vegetarian restaurant in New York City, the first vegetarian restaurant in New York City, which was called Brownies. He was there for nearly 50 years at 21 East 16th Street. And I was attracted to that neighborhood. I had listened to my dad, pounded the streets of New York in the most bitter cold winter that I can remember, the winter of 1984 into 1985. You're not even old enough to remember. What are you nodding your head for? <laughs> Come on. It's true, though, because I didn't know where I wanted to do this. I just knew that I had to get that choice of real estate right. And I had worked uh, my first and only restaurant job before that at a seafood restaurant, an Italian seafood restaurant on 22nd Street. The week I quit my job, New York Magazine had a cover story dubbing it the Flatiron District for the first time. We had started to feel... Um, the influx of advertising firms who were trying to escape the higher rents of Midtown. We were starting to feel the influx of publishing companies back when everybody read books all the time. And they all wanted to be in the Union Square neighborhood as well. There were a lot of architects in our neighborhood because of all the lofts. There were photographers. As a matter of fact, the very first week that I signed my lease at Union Square, for Union Square Cafe, that neighborhood on 16th Street, invariably you would see one of two things. You would either see people strung out on methadone, because we had a methadone clinic right next door, or you would see people pushing 
carts of men's garments up and down the street because it was also in the men's garment district. Does anyone remember that? It was, times have changed quite a bit. But there was one thing about that neighborhood in addition to all of these businesses moving in who I sensed were the kind of businesses that loved to entertain at lunch. And that was we had a farmer's market on Union Square that reminded me of the markets that I had seen when I spent six months cooking in Italy and France. And I had not even known existed in New York City. And if you want to talk about the power of a placemaking idea to create community wealth, just open a green market like the Union Square Green Market in some place that is better known for herbs like marijuana than basil and rosemary and sage and all that other kind of stuff. Because that's what Union Square Park was like. And I said, that's why we have to open there. Because we're going to have a restaurant that's going to be able to use the green market. We're going to walk in with a rent that for the first two years was $8 a square foot. You don't believe me, but it's true. That's what happens when you purchase a lease that was negotiated, I guess, 14 year, whatever it was, six years before 1985, and that neighborhood was trash back then. It was dangerous. You just didn't want to go near it. That's when I realized how stupid I was not to have bought the building. <laughs> but I really realized that about a year ago, no, excuse me, three years ago, when it became increasingly clear that we were not going to be able to negotiate a third consecutive lease. And that Union Square Cafe was very, very likely to have to close its doors after 30 years. And through tears with our staff members, uh, my own tears, in fact, I know a bunch of you in this room, raise your hand if you ever went to the original Union Square Cafe. Thank you so much for that. You, that's a good number of people in this room. Um, there, were, there was a camp in my own company that said, just close the book. It's been, it's been a great run. What else do you need? 30 years, that's, that's a pretty good run for a restaurant. You guys have won five James Beard Awards. You've got Gramercy Tavern to show for it. You've got The Modern to show for it. Blue Smoke, Shake Shack. Shake Shack's burger never would have happened if it hadn't been for Union Square Cafe doing business with an unknown at that time butcher named Pat Lafreda, whose name certainly got put on the map after Shake Shack decided, who needs a half pound burger when you can do a quarter pound burger and smash it and make people happy with that? By the way, you guys polished those off pretty quickly tonight, <laughs> so thank you for that. Um, but getting back to what I learned along the way, how insane do you think I feel when I also took my dad's advice to name, I came up with five awful names for Union Square Cafe back in 1985. And I showed them to my dad and he nearly disowned me as a son. The first one that I thought was a great idea was Gorgonzola. And I had spent some time in Italy and, and he said, you don't even like blue cheese. Why would you do that? I don't know. And then the next idea I had was Blue Plate Cafe. He's, what do you want to open a diner? What's well, with you anyway? And then I said, all right. He said, why don't you just name it for where it is? 
And I said, got it. It's going to be Piazza dell'Unione. <laughs> and at this point, he just didn't want to hear anymore. And he said, God damn it, it's Union Square Cafe. So he named it that. The third piece of advice he gave me, never dress any worse than your best dressed customer. I failed tonight. I'm looking around the room here. You guys are so much better dressed than I am. So dad, wherever you are, you, I, I was okay on the first two. Sorry about that. It was a very different time, obviously, in 1985. But because our industry at that point was so completely different than it is today, where we were told if you wanted to be taken seriously as a restaurant company, as a restaurant, as a fine dining restaurant, you should have no more than one restaurant or you immediately join the ne'er-do-well category called chain. Number two, the owner should be present at all times for every single meal service, which meant that you could burn yourself out you could live upstairs optimally like Andre Soltner did at Lutece. Some of you may remember that uh, great restaurant of that era. Um, and, and it never dawned on me that I should or could or would ever have a second restaurant because otherwise critics wouldn't take us seriously. As a matter of fact, for the first four years Union Square Cafe was opened, the thing I wanted more than anything was to be listed in the New York Times at the beginning of the summer when they would announce the famous restaurants that were gonna have summer closings and what they were. I wanted to be listed with all the Luz and Laws and Eels, even though it was Union Square Cafe. And so we closed for the first four years for two weeks every summer so I could have a vacation and still be at the restaurant for every single service. Now, needless to say, times have changed. And what's changed more dramatically than anything, I'm not going to weave you through the whole story of going from one to two restaurants, Gramercy Tavern, um, once again, naming it after its neighborhood so we would have a stake in making that neighborhood better. I mean an active stake, just like we took an active stake in Union Square. 11 Madison Park, named after its park, Tabla, named after Indian drums, but sort of a twin sister to 11 Madison Park, taking an active role in leading the campaign to restore Madison Square Park back in 1996, 1997, and 1998. The Modern, naming the restaurant after the museum, so we would have a stake in how well the museum does as well. And in each case, what I learned is that if you could use your restaurant in the way that a real estate developer might pick a property, even though I was not wise enough or able at that point to buy those properties, with the exception of Gramercy Tavern, which ultimately became a condominium property for us. Thank goodness. We are our favorite landlord, by the way. <laughs> we are so nice to ourselves all the time. Uh, but what I learned more than anything is, is what you're doing with Cornet, actually, which is that when you invest in your community, and this, you guys are an amazing community. I've watched you interact with each other over the last couple hours. Whether it's your competitors, whether it's our competitors in the restaurant industry, whether it's the people who live in our community, whether it's the not-for-profits in our community, the schools, 
the cultural organizations, the businesses. When you invest in your community, it is truly lifting all boats on the tide. Of course we are competitive, and of course we want to be people's favorite of all of the restaurants in their neighborhood or all the restaurants within a given category. We try really hard at that, but I think what we've learned, which you obviously know, is that when you invest in that which you have in common, good things happen for everybody. And we have always tried to be, for our neighborhoods, for our communities, a citizen, not just a restaurant. That, I think, gets to the very first thing I was talking about, which is how do you break down the walls of what could be an adversarial relationship? A lesson that I would tell anyone in our industry who says, what we really want is an outdoor cafe, let's say, which can be highly provocative to a new neighborhood. They don't know you. They don't know whether your patrons are good people or disobedient people or they're loud people. They don't know. The advice I would always give is you must first plant your roots and tell the neighborhood who you are as a citizen. And then the ask, if it still makes sense to you, is a really easy ask. Any restaurant that feels like they're not going to survive its first or second year with an outdoor cafe, is that's not a good business plan. The outdoor cafe ultimately should be icing on an otherwise healthy cake. But if you go into a neighborhood with your dukes up, I've learned you can make a big mistake. We made a big mistake with um, in it very, very inadvertently with a Shake Shack that we were planning. It's the only time in, in my professional experience that we actually had to ask a landlord to let us out of a lease. And what happened, I'll tell you the story, is that um, I believe this was probably in about 2006 or seven, And at this point, uh, Actually, no, it had to have been later. The first Shake Shack in Madison Square Park, uh, which was opened as an adjunct to a hot dog cart we did for a piece of art. You saw the, the film up there, and it was meant to be a good move as a citizen. It was never meant to be a big company, never mind a public company. But we established the first Shake Shack by give, gifting the kiosk to Madison Square Park so Madison Square Park would become the landlord, the goal of which was to attract citizens to use the park all day from 11 in the morning to 11 at night, which keeps the park safe. The secondary goal of which was to create a revenue stream because the park would be the landlord and therefore a percentage of every sale would go right back into the park. It turned out to be a really good business move on top of that and it has done exactly what Madison Square Park wanted. And having just been at a Madison Square Park Conservancy board meeting two days ago, it blows me away to tell you that this year alone, that little kiosk that generated a company that now has 142 shacks around the world is generating a million dollars in revenue for Madison Square Park on an annual basis. It's kind of an amazing thing. Now back to the mistake. It took us, I was wrong with my date, it took us five years to open a second Shake Shack. People don't believe that. We're kind of slow learners. 
10 years to open a second restaurant, Gramercy Tavern, five years to open a second Shake Shack. It wasn't born, no one believed me, it was not born to be rolled out as, as a chain. But we found a fantastic site on the Upper West Side, 77th and Columbus. We wanted to test and find out why do people love Shake Shack so much? It's a good burger, but come on, New Yorkers are in a big hurry. What are they waiting in line for for this thing? Is it just because they want to be in Madison Square Park? So we hedged our bet a little bit, and we said, we've got to learn something new with each one we open. So we went to the Upper West Side, across the street from a park that's adjacent to the Museum of Natural History, hedging our bet a little bit. We said, is it the shack itself? So if you go to the Upper West Side Shake Shack, you will see that inside this walk-up brick building, we crammed a shack. There's actually a real shack inside of this, because maybe that was the reason they wanted to go. Well, that one worked. And so then we went to the Upper East Side, and then we went to City Field. Might it work, you know, let's say your team doesn't win every single game, could Shake Shack make you a little happier, <laughs> if that were the case? And we're starting to feel like this thing is really working. This is really cool. And then we said, wouldn't it be especially cool to go to the neighborhood of Nolita. And there was a landlord we had met who owned a little strip parking lot. And he said, you guys can build a shack from the ground up in my parking lot. How cool is that? So community board, the plans get out. I start getting about 80 emails a minute from one person. <laughs> speaking for the whole community. Has anyone ever faced that before? No one, no one of us wants you in this community. And it turned out that this became a New York Post story. And when someone says the whole community doesn't want you and you don't really know the community, and I will own that I don't really know the community, didn't really know the community, that can cause trouble. And we said the last thing Shake Shack needs at this point from a real estate selection standpoint is to earn the enmity of its community. And so we pulled out. And it turned out that there was a, um, an apartment building immediately adjacent to the parking lot. And I guess, understandably, someone who had been very happy for years and years and years looking down at cars said, why in the world would I want to look down at a restaurant or perhaps smell the restaurant or perhaps hear the restaurant? Kind of hard to blame them, but we had not done our homework before we signed that lease. It's a really, really important lesson. The landlord could not actually, in retrospect, have been nicer because landlords don't have to let you out of leases. He owned the fact that they should have been aware of that neighborhood and they probably should have told us a little bit about how stoked it was. But he said, but don't worry about me, I'm gonna get even. And if you go down to that corner, you will see that what he has done is to build his own sliver of a high rise building, blocking every single one of those windows <laughs> that were afraid that they were gonna have a Shake Shack next door to them. But really important real estate lesson. I, now I wanna just talk to you a little bit about the role that 
how you design a restaurant, which I know is on your minds uh, because you help businesses in general design, whether it's offices or retail, et cetera. But how does hospitality play into that? And how does that play into hospitality? And by the way, what is hospitality? The biggest lesson I think we learned, um, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna get to design in a second, that no one taught me when I was growing up, is that having heard the power of service my whole life as a kid, you know, we only go to places that have good service. Make sure that if you're ever gonna open a company, they have really good service. No one really told me what service meant, and no one really told me what it didn't mean. And so, we learned kind of the hard way through making a lot of mistakes that we could have horrible service at Union Square Cafe. In the early days, we did not know how to get a cocktail from the bar to your table in under 10 minutes. Now, the last time I checked, when someone orders a beverage with alcohol, it's because they want alcohol. <laughs> they don't want to wait 10 minutes. When you want caffeine in the morning, you don't want to wait 10 minutes. There are certain fixes that we are pushing, and if we are too stupid to deliver the goods, we're going to get in trouble. So the service was really bad at the, basically the first year or so at Union Square Cafe. People would wait 25 minutes sometimes between appetizer and main course. We had people walk out and leave, and I would do anything I would do anything to get them to stay. We actually had a refrigerator that I had inherited from Brownies because I couldn't afford a new line of refrigerators behind the bar. I just put a sheet of green Formica so they look new on the front of it. But one of those refrigerators would not chill anything other than 34 degrees. What does that mean? Too warm to freeze anything, way too cold for white wine. So what I decided to do with that was to call it the medicine cabinet, and we kept about 15 different varieties of dessert wine. And dessert wine is so viscous that it actually likes to be really, really cold, and it works that way. And we called it the medicine cabinet because every time our service sucked, someone would say, medicine cabinet for table 36, and we would go to the medicine cabinet and pour free dessert wine for people and we would keep pouring it till they finally smiled before they left. <laughs> and I learned a really important lesson, is that even if the service was horrible, it could be overcome with hospitality. And that's when I put words to the whole thing so I could teach it. And what I've learned time and time again is that when you can name something, you can teach it. If you don't name it, you can't teach it. And what we've been able to teach everyone on our teams with every single one of our restaurants is what we call the two-ingredient recipe that we hope adds up to 100. And the two-ingredient, I would love, our chefs would love it if every one of their recipes only had two ingredients. But this two ingredients is 49 parts performance and 51 parts hospitality. And we named it. And performance is, and if we, if to the degree that we can nail as many of those 49 points as possible in the technical performance. How good did the food taste? Did we get the right food to the right person, the right temperature, the right table, the right time? 
get the right coat back to them, seat them exactly on time for their 8 o'clock Saturday night reservation, not spill drops of wine all over the table when you're pouring, or worse yet, all over somebody's cufflinks. Um, if you do all those things, you're still not at your 49 points because what if the air conditioner is not working the right way? What if the restaurant's too loud? What if the table is wobbly? There are so many things that either do or don't taste, smell, feel, look right. But if you can get all that technical stuff as close to perfection as possible or be amazing as we are at covering up all of our mistakes, you get a 49 on your test. Now, can you imagine how hard it is to do all that stuff? You know in your business how hard it is to do the stuff you're supposed to do incredibly well and you come up with a score that I never would have put on my family's refrigerator, a 49. I don't want to brag about that. But the cool thing is that we've learned that we will never be the best at anything we do. But we can become somebody's favorite at what we do. Think about that for a minute. The highest compliment any of us can pay to any place or anybody or any restaurant or any business or your sweater is to say, that's my favorite. This is my, this is my favorite watch right here. Anyone want to argue with me? Now, what if I say, this is the best watch? You guys, this is a $39 Timberland watch. You can all argue. This is not the best watch, and we all know that. But it doesn't matter. What matters to people when they are doing business and we're trying to move from an adversarial transaction into a hospitality experience are those two ingredients. How well does the product or person, who's my favorite professor? Who's my favorite aunt and uncle? To become somebody's favorite anything, you gotta be really good at what you do. And guess what, this $39 watch the only time I ever have to change the time is if I'm changing time zones. It's really, really reliable. And every time I push the little button on it, oh wait, I didn't wear my Timberland tonight. Sorry about that. I'm not wearing my favorite watch. I'm wearing a new Shinola right here. I forgot about that. Um, you push the button and the light comes on. As long as it works, it's gonna get the 49 points. Now what makes it my favorite? it's also got to do the hospitality part. And the hospitality part, the 51 points, obviously slightly more than 49, which is kind of good because if you want to have your business become somebody's favorite to do business with, of course you're going to keep trying to get better at what you do. But we're in a day and age where everything you know how to do, everybody else knows how to do too. Because as soon as you do something really well today, the word gets out immediately. Take my business, for example. We used to be able to find a wine on an off-the-beaten-track village in Italy. And I know how to speak Italian. I know how to read maps. And I know how to relate to winemakers. And they would send me to their favorite little village trattoria that nobody had ever heard of. It wasn't in any of the big guides. And I would have a dish that would blow my mind and I'd bring it back to Union Square Cafe, put it on the menu, or I'd put a wine on our wine list, and people would be like, oh my God, 
Where did they come up with that idea? That is so good. And we would have basically a one-year running start before anyone would copy it. Today, you don't have to go to Italy. You don't have to speak the language. You don't know, have to know how to read a map. You just have to know how to look up images on Google or go to Instagram. And you can even see if people like that dish or not. You can say it looks good. You can show it to your chef. You can see what people said about it. You can see what critics said about it. And you can plagiarize three continents away if you want to. You can plagiarize design ideas. You can plagiarize everything. And so how well you do what you do continues to be of paramount importance. But we must realize that the shelf life of that amazing innovation has gone from about a year to about 10 seconds. As long as it takes me to take out my smartphone, take a photo, text it or email it to the right person, boom, it's done. So that leaves us with the 51%, which is not about performance. Performance are all the things we do. The 51% hospitality are all the ways we make people feel. And as Maya Angelou, the late poet, said, long after people forget what you did and what you said, they will remember how you made them feel. She may have talked about restaurants and said, long after you forget what you ate and what you drank, you're going to remember how the restaurant made you feel. You know that. You know that as restaurant goers. You all go to restaurants all the time. And you're either made to feel like the restaurant's happy to see you or you're not. You're either made to feel like another transaction that they're going to tally up and send to the, the accountant tomorrow morning, or you're going to feel like a human story that they care about, that they take an interest in. And that's what we've learned. We, we hire people based on the emotional skills to win at hospitality. We train people on the technical skills to win at the performance. We don't want a 51-point grade any more than we want a 49-point grade. We want it all. And this is, this is really what works the most. I've got a number of other things that I want to uh, talk about tonight. But as I promised you, what I would really most like is to respond. I hope I provoked some questions along the way. Um, I will tell you, uh, thank you again for inviting me tonight. And I also want to thank you for being great citizens of New York who, through design, actually advance hospitality. You would be surprised how the smallest gesture of good design can actually make one of our guests feel like we are on their side. When you understand that when a restaurant asks you to design a banquette with six tables side by side so they can increase their cover count, and in order to fit those six tables in side by side, each table must be very narrow, and because the restaurant theoretically has thought about their plates before they shape their table, that same table must be very long. What you do is to help restaurants understand that is actually going to detract from your hospitality because it's going to mean that everybody sitting down is going to be seated much closer to the person they didn't come with and much too far from the person they did come with, and they're not going to have a great time. And it doesn't matter how good the food tastes at that point. 
they're not going to have a great time. When you help us think about sound, and you understand that sound in a restaurant is like salt in the hands of a chef, too much is wrong, too little is wrong. You've got to get it just right. You help us quite a bit. When you help us think about neighborhoods and which neighborhoods are good neighborhoods to bet on for the next 10 or 15 years, because it can take a long time to pay back the investment we make in our restaurant spaces, you're on our side. There are so many ways that, that what you do is of crucial importance to what we do. And the fact that you entertain in our restaurants all the time is also great. So thank you for that, too. I want to welcome Jody back up here. I think she's going to help with some of the questions. And thank you all very, very much. We'd, we'd love to take some questions from the audience. I know you all have burning questions to ask Danny. Danny, just a question on the tipping. There, there is a roving microphone, but, but if it doesn't get to you, I'll repeat your question so everybody can hear it. Great, thanks. Thank you again for tonight. It was really fascinating, a very interesting talk. Tipping, you went out in front of everyone else on the concept of now just including it. How has that worked out? What, what really started that for you? Why did you decide to go that route? We started down that route in my mind about 20 years ago. I wrote an essay in the Union Square Cafe newsletter for a very different reason than we ultimately did it 20 years later. 20 years ago, I was getting very, very upset when we would get a visitor from a country that doesn't come from a tipping culture and they would leave no tip. And because of the tipping system, servers in, I think, about 42 states get $2.13 an hour. It's an adjusted minimum wage. Um, it was $0 right after slavery because our industry and the Pullman train car industry successfully petitioned the government to say they're not slaves if we can get the customers to pay them. And so our entire industry for all those years Minimum, adjusted minimum wage in our industry went up to $2.13 as of about 10 years ago. Now there are several states, New York included, where the minimum wage, even for tipped employees, has gone up to $7.50, which is way, way below the other minimum wage. But 20 years ago, I was, I was unhappy that servers could get stiffed just because people didn't understand our system. And they would be in tears. Maybe they couldn't pay their rent. I mean, that's a little hyperbolic. But it just felt bad altogether. Then something else happened. Over the last 20 years, I started to realize that there was zero correlation between tips and hospitality. If you're a 20% tipper, you're always a 20% tipper. If you're a cheapskate, you're always a cheapskate. If you're always incredibly generous, you're always incredibly generous. I would hear people, I would overhear conversations at the table. Just do the usual tip. She's trying to pay her way, you know. And it zero correlation to how quickly the food came out or how nice the person was or how much they knew the wine list. That was thing number one. Thing number two is that because of that, what's happened in my career over 30 years is that the gap between what a server can make and what a cook can make has pretty much quadrupled. And it's appalling. 
Why is that? Because waiters can share tips. In fact, most fine dining restaurants, they do pool their tips with each other. So even when you think you're being a big spender and leaving a 25% tip, it's just going to be shared with everybody anyway. Or even when you think you're punishing somebody because the food took too long, which may or may not have been their fault, everybody in the whole restaurant is getting a little bit punished. So what's happened in 30 years? Menu prices have gone up dramatically. I was looking at the original Union Square Cafe wine list recently, 1985. Our most expensive wine was a Merceau for $35. Um, we had Quintarelli Valpolicella for $19 and now sells for about $190 in a lot of different restaurants. Menu prices go up. What is a tip if not a multiplier of menu prices? Guess what? The multiplier even went up. In 1985, it was 15%. Then it was 17.5% because people said, just double the tax because we can't figure out 15%. Then it went up to 20% because they figured out how to do that. And now it's even higher, believe it or not because a lot of people tip on top of the tax as well. So now 21% times really high menu prices. I'm not feeling that sorry for a lot of servers these days, but what I feel horrible about is saying, when I look at the cooks who on a Saturday night are working like crazy, so are the servers. They work really, really hard, but the servers get to walk away from that Saturday night a little wealthier the cooks just sweat a little bit more. And it's really hard to motivate and create hospitality on a team where you've got that kind of disparity. So we said, enough already. Let's take this into our own hands. Cooks should get more money. It's not that waiters should get less money. But why don't we create a professional meritocracy instead of a fly-by-night freelance system that doesn't really reward excellence and the only way that the best waiters in a tipping system can get a raise is to get the Friday and Saturday night shifts. Has anyone here ever been a server before? That's the one. Does anybody fight for the Monday lunch shift? No, they don't. But now we're able to put our best team on the field always, irrespective of anything other than their, their success. Um, we were told this can never work. We're told, we were told your customers are going to rebel because your menu prices are going to look really high, which they do. If anyone's ever been to one of our restaurants since this, I bet you had a little sticker shock the first time because we are very used to seeing this is what chicken should cost. And we know full well that in two hours we're going to take another 20% out of our own pocket and add it to that price, but we just know that and we've known that our whole lives. What we're not conditioned to do is to see the whole price first and then pay nothing else later. But when what we've learned, we're doing fine. We, we actually have almost no pushback whatsoever from our guests except some people saying, how am I going to get a good table if I don't tip my waiter a lot, as if the waiter's the reservationist anyway, they're not. Um, but nobody's really had a problem with this whatsoever. Um, wait till the winter time and you don't have to buy your coat back. You're going to love that. Um, how much do you love buying your coat back when you go to restaurants? I already paid for that once. So it's going well on balance. Um, hard, hard work, especially when you convert an entire restaurant. When we reopened Union Square Cafe on 19th Street and Park Avenue South, um, 
that was almost an entirely new team at that point because we were closed for a year and almost all the other servers went elsewhere at that point. But when you're converting a staff that took their job based on a certain set of economics and you're shifting how they get paid and when they get paid, it's hard work, but I wouldn't go back for the world. Thank you, Danny, for taking the time tonight. Uh, you said it earlier, restaurants play a vital role in revitalizing communities and having a sense of place for their residents. Um, as restaurants, as rents keep increasing more and more, and these restaurants that help revitalize these communities start shuttering their doors, what do you think is the future of the restaurant industry now when restaurateurs don't have that margin anymore in terms of an $8 rent versus how much they're charging for their menu price? Everybody heard the question? No? Yes? Raise your hand if you did not hear the question. I'll try to be real brief. I think the question is, our industry was never, the fine dining part of our industry was never a really rich margin business. It's a business that has attracted many of us because we're passionate about putting a smile on your face. That's not to say you can't make money in the fine dining industry, but I will agree with what you said, which is um, what was challenging 32 years ago is dramatically more challenging today um, for reasons that you all know. There's been a revolutionary growth in people's fascination and interest in dining out well. Believe it or not, in 1985, if you wanted to eat really well, it was a fancy restaurant. That's all you had. Union Square Cafe was kind of a new kind of place 32 years ago where you could eat well and be casual if that's what you wanted. Now there's thousands of restaurants like Union Square Cafe. Um, all kinds of downward pressure on our ability to raise our prices. Why? Because you can eat at home now in all kinds of different ways. You can get amazing food in a whole new sector, which you guys are seeing left and right. I call the fine casual sector. I think it's the successor to fast casual, which was the successor to casual and fast food. And fine casual restaurants, and I think Shake Shack is one of them. I think restaurants like Sweet Green. Um, there's one that uh, we made an investment in on the West Coast, which will be coming to New York um, in a few months, called Tender Greens. And if you, if you blindfolded yourself and ate at Tender Greens, you would find that the quality of the flavor is just about as good as any of, of our mid-level restaurants and you would be paying about a quarter as much to eat there. Why is that happening? And what does that mean to the real estate market? Well, they're popping up everywhere. People are interested today, and they're, they're able to pay higher rents because what they're doing is doing a lot more volume, doing a lot fewer things on their menu, even better. And what I find fascinating are restaurants in this sector who say, I'm going to take something you know and cook it better than you knew it could be for a much lower price. Now, I learned something from your industry. Every single time I would ever spill out the story of a new restaurant, like Gramercy Tavern, here's the, I, I always start with a story, or 11 Madison Park, or The Modern, or Myelino. 
Invariably, it's the exact same thing every single time. I spill the story, a certain amount of time goes by, and the architect comes back with the design. And I go, yeah, that's it. That's exactly what I wanted. And then we get the engineer involved and the contractor involved, and they start pricing it out. And that's why I've got a problem with my jaw, because my jaw drops for years and years and years. And what you guys were obviously all taught in the same school was to say, well, of course, that's the rule of two. Has anyone ever heard of the rule of two? You have, because you were the ones who taught it to me. They, you say there are only three salient issues, price, quality, and speed. Which two do you want? You've heard that. Come on, you guys are the ones that told me that. And so that leads to value engineering, and maybe you have to curtail some of your dream. Maybe it takes a lot longer. Maybe it costs a little less, but you don't get exactly what you wanted. And I was thinking about that because your question actually shows that our industry faces the exact same rule of two. Take fast food. Arguably the greatest export that this country has had in the world of entertainment outside of films and music. You may or may not go to fast food restaurants. Your kids may or may not go to fast food restaurants, but you can't argue that that rule of two worked. You say you want it fast, check. You want it cheap, check. Let's not even talk about where the beef was raised or how many levels of chickens there were laying those eggs in awful conditions. You're not going to ask and we're not going to tell. What, what is happening today, which is fascinating, is that the fine casual sector, and you're seeing it with pizza, you're seeing it with Greek food, you're seeing it with Japanese food, you're seeing it with burgers, obviously Mexican, Southwestern, every single category. You're going to see it with Italian food more and more. They're basically saying, whether they're saying it explicitly or not, they're doing it. We get the rule of two thing, but whoever wrote the rule that it has to be one plus one plus zero. And so if you take something like Shake Shack, the deal we're making is, and the reason I call it fine casual, we will apply 100% of the same philosophy for how we source ingredients at Shake Shack as we would at Union Square Cafe. We're going to use the same butcher. We're going to use the same chocolate maker. We're going to get our beer guy, same guy that brews beer for us, to make a special brew for Shake Shack. He's not trying any less hard. So we're going to give you all the quality in your mouth if you are willing to give up a reservation and a bartender and a maitre d' and a tablecloth and flowers, right? All those things that add up to a lot of money because the minute you put a waiter on the floor, you need a service manager. And the minute you put a chef in the kitchen, which we don't have at Shake Shack, you need a sous chef and another sous chef and a pastry chef. The minute you put wine on the list, you need a sommelier or two. You take all those costs out, but you take nothing out of the quality. You cook to order, unlike fast food, and you can move so many people through, and basically the rule of two has become 0.65 plus 0.65 plus 0.65. It's, we're going to save you 65% of what it would have cost 
to eat that same quality food at a full-service restaurant. Not 100%, and we're going to save you 65% of the time, not all of the time. So it's, it, you're going to see this everywhere right now. And that's going to actually put even more pressure on the fine dining industry because we think that what guests want more than anything is either convenience or a high level of experience, but they're never willing to forego quality. And so we think about that all the time. So what if you're not a highly experiential restaurant and, and you're still not nearly as convenient as pushing an app on your phone and having the food on your desk? And that's why we are tripling down on the hospitality part of it because the high experience restaurants don't necessarily give great hugs. And the really, really convenient places don't necessarily do that either. And I think the sweet spot for hospitality actually lies in full service. Hope that answers your question. We got time for one more? Thank you. Hospitality. Just to bring it back maybe to real estate in New York, which this group is pretty interested in, um, you're going into the top of 28 Liberty with a big space, and then you backed out of, I think, Hudson Yards on a big food hall space. Can you talk about why you went forward with the one and what you're doing, gives you an advertisement, and B, why you pulled out of the other and what you think about those respective real estate decisions, why you went that direction? Okay, that, that's, a, that's a really good, did you all hear the question? How do we, I, I, what I'd like to try to do is say, how do we make a yes or a no decision on, on any real estate? And, and I feel really, really grateful that we're in a position to be on the receiving end of a lot of fantastic opportunities. I also feel really grateful that we are at a time in history where People, are, people seem to be more interested in food as a placemaker for projects than they've ever been before. Um, hotels have been going on for 20 years, but we weren't hearing from airports 20 years ago. We weren't hearing from airlines 20 years ago. We weren't hearing from baseball stadiums. We weren't hearing from art museums um, and parks. And so it's been a fascinating opportunity for us to say, we know what we know. There's a whole lot of stuff we don't know. But what if we could add what we do to somebody else's project? We could be the best supporting actor to help them succeed even more at what they're trying to do. So the two examples you gave um, just now were Hudson Yards, uh, where there is going to be a fantastic, as I understand it, a fantastic market that will be um, curated and operated by Jose Andres, the uh, Spanish chef from Washington, D.C., who's a great guy, and I guarantee you it'll be a big success. I don't know much about it right now, but I've heard it'll sort of be a Spanish version of Italy, so I guess speedily or something like that. Um, I hope he doesn't name it that. My dad would roll in his grave if he heard that name. And then the other project you're talking about is the 60th floor of a landmark building, um, 28 Liberty, which used to be the um, office of David Rockefeller many years ago. Extraordinary views of the city. 
And why do we choose to do one and not choose to do the other? Um, the, the decision making for almost everything we do is multifaceted, but I can tell you what the facets look like. The first one and the most important one is timing. Where will we be when that is scheduled to open in terms of our organizational capacity and talent in order to do it? Because it can be, we've, we've turned down some amazing opportunities. In fact, one just a couple weeks ago that I'm going to kick myself because I'm going to walk by a jamming packed restaurant and it won't be mine. And it's going to be very frustrating. But we have to look at our whole team and say, given the spectrum of what we've already committed to, is this a wise thing to do? Number two, given the context of where the thing is, do we have anything to add to the dialogue? So I actually thought that doing a market at Hudson Yards would have been a fascinating project to do. Just absolutely fascinating. There were two reasons, two or three reasons that we said better it be somebody else. The amount of investment that it would have taken to do it in dollars and time was not something I could possibly imagine making pay off unless we were basically a 380 hitter for 15 consecutive seasons. And that's too many things go on in the world. So if the underlying economics um, and the time it would take to curate, because the dream that we had for that space would have been as, uh, by the way, there's another timing factor. During the last three years, this city has seen an explosion in food halls. And so we basically also said, we may not have anything fresh to add to the dialogue because there's a great one at Brookfield Place. There's a great one at Gansevoort. There's a great one in Brooklyn. There's a great one already on 10th Avenue. There's, they're all over the place right now. And I really admire that. So we then said, all right, if we're going to do one, it's got to be different. It's got to feel like the Boqueria in Barcelona, or it's got to feel like the Reading Terminal Market in Philadelphia, or Soulard Market, where I'm from in St. Louis, um, or the Borough Market in London, where instead of feeling like an updated food court with today's fine casual brands, as opposed to the ones that we've all grown up with in airports, et cetera. And we just said, we don't have the time or the money to do it the right way. So better it be somebody else. Now, at 28 Liberty, we have an opportunity for the first time. We have a, our biggest company is one you may never have heard of called Union Square Events. And that's our company that does not only big events like the Robin Hood event or Museum of Modern Art party in the garden, but we do the work at City Field where we do food. We do the work for Delta Airlines where we serve meals or we cook meals for the, uh, the business class. What Union Square Events has never had is its own stunning, stunning venue that you can actually go to. We're kind of like a nomad. We'll go wherever we're wanted, but we've never had our own place. And so to have a spectacular site that overlooks the entire city just felt like an opportunity that we had to say yes to. And then furthermore, the opportunity to create a new kind of restaurant on a very tall floor 
which we will do. It's not going to be a restaurant that tries to compete with the amazing view by being ultra fancy, but it's rather going to be hopefully the kind of restaurant you would want to go to three times a week if it were just in your neighborhood. And we'll hope that the view won't detract from how comfortable that is. Um, and so the opportunity to do both of those things with amazing underlying economics relative to our capacity to only do one thing like on a big scale like that, it was, it was a hard but in retrospect, I know it was the right decision. Thank you all very, very much. Thank you. And I just want to thank Danny for his generosity tonight, for his incredible perspective on hospitality and his career. Um, thank you all for coming. Please join us for cocktails, for hors d'oeuvres. Danny's going to sign some books for us. And thank you all for coming. <laughs>